I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you like awesome rings? Do you need a ring to replace one that you lost ages ago? Or do you need a new wedding band because yours is no longer fixable? Well, (laughs) I have this cool sponsor, Boone Titanium Rings. They can be found at boonrings.com. They make their rings from titanium, and you can get the rings carved, engraved, inlaid, laser cut. There's even special collections like the Hunter Series or the Gamer Rings or the Black Zirconium. Very cool. They have models that have meteorite, wood, or other inlays. Check out boonrings.com. And at checkout, use the code for my podcast. It's capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, and the number 12. T-L-L-K-12. And you will get 10% off the total. And you will help this podcast out. Thanks so much. I love my ring. And I know you will love yours. Hey. Steve here, and this is a special episode where I teamed up with my friend Jeff Eichler, you know, the host of Getting Unstuck, Cultivating Curiosity. We're talking with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Lee Ellis, and this is just an amazing discussion. We talk about Lee's experiences in the Vietnam War as a POW and his leadership teachings and books. So much to learn. Thanks for listening. Lee Ellis is the founder and president of Leadership Freedom, LLC, and Freedom Star Media. He is an award-winning author, leadership consultant, and expert presenter in the areas of leadership, team building, and human performance. Lee served as an Air Force fighter pilot flying 53 combat missions over North Vietnam. In 1967, he was shot down and held as a POW for more than five years. For his wartime service, he was awarded two silver stars, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star with Valor Device, the Purple Heart, the Air Medal with eight oak leaf clusters, and the POW Medal. Lee resumed his Air Force career serving in many leadership roles and leadership development organizations. He is the author or co-author of several books. Today we are focused on his books, Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, Engage with Honor, Building a Culture of Courageous Accountability, and his soon-to-be-released, Captured by Love, True Romance Stories by POWs. So much to learn. Thanks for listening. And and, and by the way, it'd be so cool if you shared the podcast with your friends, your neighbors, your family, your colleagues. Could you do that for me? Just say, hey, you should listen to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, the podcast. And here's the link. Thanks so much. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. So, Lee, I can't thank you enough for being here today. And I was wondering if you can, you know, the leadership that you work with, you know, and working with people and so forth, you had, um, you were a uh, um, officer in the United States Air Force and uh, um, fought, you uh, fought for the country in, uh, during the war with Vietnam. And I was wondering if you could uh, start with us just a little bit about, uh, you know, your experiences as a POW during the Vietnam War, you know, impacted how you look at leading yourself and others and 
helps you define the lessons in leading with honor and engage with honor, your books. Um, could you give our listeners the background on your incarceration? Yeah. Well, I was a young kid who always wanted to play quarterback at the University of Georgia, but my senior year, I was 155 pounds. I wasn't quite the fastest guy on the team. I was pretty good, but not near good enough. But I, the other thing I wanted to do was fly jets. And uh, I got into ROTC three days after I was commissioned. I went to flight school. 53 weeks later, I had my wings and an assignment to the F-4, which said F-4 Pipeline, Southeast Asia. The war was building up. This was uh, 1967. I got to Da Nang in South Vietnam and uh, as a you know qualified combat pilot in uh, July. And I'd flown by November. I'd flown 53 missions over North Vietnam, actually 52. I was on my 53rd. And I had other missions, close air support for the Army and the Marine Corps in the South Vietnam, and also some interdiction missions bombing the roads and trucks in Laos. So I was a fairly experienced, I was a little bit halfway through my career, my uh, uh, deployment there uh, in combat. And then one day my airplane just blew up <laughs> and we were getting shot at a lot and uh, it blew up in several pieces. And fortunately we've been well-trained and we're able, there were two in the F-4 and we were both uh, able to eject. Uh, my partner, they caught him in his parachute before he hit the ground. <laughs> he didn't get to do his parachute landing fall. I did all, I did mine and hit all five points that I'd been trained to do. So our training was really good, but we, he was caught immediately. I was surrounded and captured within a minute or two. It took two weeks to get to Hanoi, during which time there was a lot of excitement and we were strafed and bombed by our own era friends. <laughs> Fortunately, they had a lot of foxholes and caves to get into, and the local population would get all fired up with the communists cheering them on. But we made it to Hanoi, and so I spent five and a half years as a POW there. Now, uh, I had cellmates that had been there six years. I had one that had been there, well, by the time we came home, we had been there six years. But some who had been there a year longer than me, some two years longer than me before I got there, and so their experience and what they had suffered through, I think, able to, was able to set an example for me. Now, you got to realize I just turned 24 when I was captured. So I was generally the youngest guy around in the cell, and we always had a, a rank structure. Whoever the senior ranking person was, by pin on date of their rank, they were the senior ranking person. And fortunately, almost all of our leaders were really good. They set a great example. Uh, they had the one thing that was so great about the POW experience in terms of leadership was that you had to be authentic. You couldn't pretend. You couldn't, if you're locked up with somebody 24 hours a day for a year or two, you know, there's no way you're going to pretend you're something you're not. So we all lived in a very authentic way. And if you weren't authentic, it got called out pretty quickly which helped you to grow. So I think the, the, the ability to understand ourselves, the good, the bad, the ugly, and where we needed to grow, it came out, and that helped us to become better people and better leaders by the time we came home. So that was one of the most important things. And by the way, I've just finished a new book about uh, POW romance and marriage, and the same thing that we went through in the POW camp that helped us become better leaders, helped us become more authentic, actually helped us in our 
uh, love relationships. And uh, so many of us have been married 48 to 64 years. <laughs> That's awesome. Congratulations on that, too. Colonel <laughs> wow. um, Ellis, just as an aside, uh, uh, if you if you ever get to New York again, um, there's an aircraft carrier on the Hudson River, the USS Intrepid, mm -hmm. and they have um, an F-4 on the flight deck. Yeah, wow. I'll come see it. I've been to a couple of those, one in Charleston, one in San Diego, but I'll sure come to the one in New York. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, for, for somebody like myself who loves to fly but had never flown a military aircraft, it's it's an awesome, awesome beast. Yeah. So Yeah, that F-4 was uh, – a brute, a beautiful beast, I call it in the book, a beautiful beast. Right. Well, first of all, let me let me say this. Thank you for your service. I I, uh, I just when I when I was reading your books, I was just amazed. And, and I I could not help. And I'm sure Steve would agree. I, I just could not help but uh, put myself mentally in that place. And just I'm amazed that you were able to do what you were able to do. And to think the way you thought, the the book "Leading with Honor" and I'm, for for our guests, I'm holding up my copy of it. Um, it's it's divided into two major parts: uh, leading yourself and leading others. And uh, one part, uh, it's chapter three in in leading yourself. It's about, and this is what's so amazing about your writing. the The title is "Stay Positive," staying positive under those under those conditions and a, a two-part question how did you stay positive how did you how did you value your self-worth in in those conditions and what do you what do you say to people in the work environment to leaders that you're working with today to maintain their self-worth you know fighter pilots have an advantage in that we're sometimes overconfident but we do kind of believe in ourselves so in some ways, that was a real advantage. Most all the POWs were fighter pilots. And all were, almost all that were in North Vietnam were air crew members, and most were fighter pilots. So going in, you had some folks who were pretty confident in themselves. Now, we all lost that confidence, so though, when we were tortured. And uh, we had to come to grips with the reality that we weren't as tough as we thought we were. We, we may have been tough. We may have been uh, good at a lot of things, but we were humbled. And I can remember the first time I was tortured and uh, gave in and agreed to fill out a three-page biography. Uh, I, and I filled it out, but the only thing that was accurate on it was my father's first and last name. So I didn't give him anything. But the fact that I did that, uh, I cried like a baby. I was in... Uh, I was in handcuffs and leg irons laying on the floor in the filthy torture room, and I was crying like a baby because I thought I was the most worthless guy that ever wore in the uniform. When I get back to my cell, though, I, I found out that I had endured longer than some others and not as long as some others, and that everybody, as we learned over the next uh, few months, everybody who had been there for any length of time had been through that, and we all ended up in the same place. Some were went longer than others, but we all ended up, they could make you do something and they wouldn't let you die. So you had to figure out how to do something eventually, but not give them what they wanted for propaganda or intelligence or anything like that. So that humbling of us, very confident fighter pilots, helped us. And then the fact that our teammates encouraged us and helped us bounce back.
and believed in us. And I'll tell you, as a leader, uh, by the way, I did this exercise with the school superintendents in Georgia in one of the one-day sessions. I had, we had about 25 there. And I asked them all to think of someone who had spoken into their lives and they were growing up or early in their career, and it really made a difference. They had believed in them and they had said something to them that changed their life. And when they shared those short little stories, it was so powerful. I still remember a lot of them, you know, and uh, speaking into somebody's life by encouraging them and letting them know you believe in them helps them bounce back. And next time they're going to be stronger. So some leaders, 40% of the population are naturally results, logic focused. And logically they may see that, but it's hard for them to encourage people. Uh, the current chief of staff of the air force, uh, general, QC Brown is a real introvert, highly logic, results-oriented guy, but he knows himself and he's very vulnerable. And he said, when I walk out of my office in the Pentagon and start to go down the hall, I coach myself before I step out in the hallway, when I meet somebody in the hall, smile and say, good morning. And you know that I told him, I went to his office up there in the Pentagon a few months ago. And I said, you know, I, I know that you're thinking about being a leadership speaker or something when you retire. And I want to encourage you to do that and write a book because you're so you're such a great leader, but you're also very vulnerable about who you are. And you talk about how you coach yourself to adapt. And when leaders coach themselves to adapt, it just makes all the difference in the world. A little bit of adapting goes a long way. Right. Uh, you mentioned a key word about leadership, uh, vulnerability. Yes. And that's, that's a, that's a practice that many leaders have trouble with. Yes, exactly. They feel, I think they feel, and I've read a lot about this, that being vulnerable in front of their, their staff is going to make them look weak. It's going to make them look like they don't know everything. And there's this, there's this um, expectation in the world of business. I would, I worked for a major U S publishing company for 45 years and in certain circles, you you could not be vulnerable because yeah. people would literally chew you up. I'm yeah. just I'm curious, Lee, um, how you're able to get people to consider vulnerability when it's so ingrained in a lot of business leaders that I mean it's just that practice is anathema to everything they've been taught. Yeah. Well, that's because. We all have this, I have a model. I have, I'll send you guys this model, but I have a model. It's a continuum of insecure to secure, okay? And when you're insecure, your doubts, your fears, your shame, and your guilt cause you to hold back in, instead of doing things courageously or being vulnerable when you need to and own it when you mess up and say, guys, I messed that one up. So let's go back and recapture that and y'all help me get out of this one. You know, when a leader does that, people just, it builds trust. They say, you know, he's, they see that, okay. They've already seen that, but when you own it, then their faith in you goes up because you own what they've been seeing rather than you deny it or try to pretend that you're somebody who doesn't have any problems at all. So helping uh, leaders helping their people become more secure. You know, I am who I am today because so many leaders spoke into my life and believed in me. 
then no doubt I would have been much shakier, much more <laughs> like that if leaders had not been speaking into my life and believing in me. But they also gave me feedback of, hey, Lee, this is you probably could have done this this way back then. OK, and I'm listening and say, OK, I'll coach myself on that next time and do it right and do it better. But I was thinking about this afternoon about our talk today, and I was thinking about how when I was a squadron commander of a T-38 squadron, I had about, about 50, 60 instructor pilots, all with a 1,000 hours of instructor time. So they're very good. They're the top in the Air Force at being a T-38 instructor pilot. And um, I was their leader, and I had flight commanders. There were eight flights. Each one had a group and two section commanders, one for each four. And I would sit down with them and meet and talk. And, you know, I just had to be, I was just totally honest with them. And a lot of times I would say, what do you guys think? Before I got into it, I would just say, tell me, let's go around the room. Here's the situation we're facing. What do you guys think? I might have an idea of what I think we ought to do. And I'm not going to give up on my idea unless they got a better idea. But if they got a better idea, I'm going to say, you know, that sounds pretty good. What do you guys think? Okay, let's go do that. <laughs> you know? Right. I just I just want to get it right and have a I want to have a top performance where everybody feels valued and important. That's what's important because when you have that, you're going to have a winner. So, Lee, one thing I'm curious about is as you're talking, I'm thinking back. I've done an extensive amount of reading on World War II aviation, mm-hmm. especially pilots of the heavies. You know, the B twenty four, the B seventeen. Yeah. 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 These these in some cases, I just read about um, a pilot who lied about his age. He was 18 years old and he was he was left seat on a B-24. But a lot of these guys were 19 or 20 years, yeah. 20 years old. And they were they were trained in the technical aspects of flying those aircraft, but mm-hmm. not on what you're talking about in terms of leadership or how you look at yourself as a leader, how you look at your guys. A lot of that I think was instinct. What what's the what's the training today of pilots in terms of not just the the technical aspects, if you will, but the uh, the people aspects of of being a commander like you were? Well, you get every uh, every time you get promoted, you're a first second lieutenant, a first lieutenant by the time you get your wings usually. And then you're a captain. So as a captain, you're going to go through some leadership training uh, at that point. Uh, once you starting to move up to be a flight, a flight commander, you're going to get some leadership training. Uh, we have a uh, supervisor's course. We also have a squadron officer uh, uh, school course, which is uh, eight weeks. The supervisor course is like a week long. But they start to develop them. Also, uh, I think there are some uh, some reading things occasionally they do, and I think they discuss some of that, and they bring people like me in to speak to them, <laughs> to talk about those things. But, you know, an 18- or 19-year-old kid is not going to have the experience uh, of life, of making mistakes and coming through it. You know, there's nothing like resilience of having messed up and bounced back and messed up and bounced back, and you learn from each one of those and, you know, well, that wasn't, I won't, I won't do that again. <laughs> like one time, as, even as a squadron commander, I was trying to think of some a mistake I made. And I had a guy that got badly injured. He broke his hip or leg or something. He couldn't fly. And we didn't manage him well. And he got off and got, he probably might have already been into marijuana. I'm not sure. This was 1981 or so. 
but he got into selling drugs. Yikes. <laughs> and we did not stay connected to him and make him uh, accountable every day. And if we had done that, we might have uh, saved him and protected him and held him accountable on a regular basis. But I ended up sending him to Leavenworth, the federal prison. Wow. And I cared about him. I went to see him in jail. And, and I felt badly that we hadn't done more for him to intervene, but he pulled back and we were busy and we just didn't get back engaged. And so, you know, his flight, he had a flight commander, a section commander, and the squadron commander, me. But I felt like I should have noticed that if I had that to do over again, I'd say, don't let somebody drift away from our crowd. They got to be involved with us. Or if they start drifting away, there's no telling what could happen to them. Wow. Powerful. That, that is so powerful. I mean, that's just, uh, and we think about the leaders in schools and such, and, and, uh, and, uh, and not just in schools, across the, um, in whatever element they're in, whatever organization, and uh, um, the, the different types of people they come in contact with. And I, I think that's so, uh, that's a powerful lesson right there. You know, in the you know later in the in the book you have the, another section that's called leading others, and mm-hmm. um, one of the things that uh, um, I wanted to ask you about is you, know, you talk about uh, in uh, in chapter seven you talk about clarify and build your culture you know and you note the following once the culture is defined it must be communicated fervently and frequently until it's caught and bought in every corner and uh, every level of the organization could you talk about why this is important. Yeah, you just cannot assume that everybody sees the picture that you're seeing when you're the leader. you got to, um, you know, uh, Jack Wells said, I had one sermon, I preached it everywhere I went. And you got to keep saying your message over and over. And especially, you know, I think in leadership, you have to de- determine, clarify what your boundaries are. And boundaries have a lot of different areas. One, your behavior in the military dress was part of that, how you dress and you had, you had to shave back then. And, you know, well, we had mustaches, but they weren't supposed to go beyond the corner of your mouth there, except a few times we did in the war, but define the boundaries of your culture. And when everybody knows what the boundaries are, what's expected of our team, our organization, then you can delegate a lot. And then you have to clarify the mission and whatever pieces that that go with that, that everybody needs to know or which levels they need to know. So thinking about, do they need, do they know everything they need to know to go execute their job and do their role? Uh, Think about in, in school system, if you're a principal, okay, you got teachers. Well, what is the culture? What's okay? What's not okay? That's gotta be really clear to the teachers. And then the teachers need to clarify that with the students. Okay, are we going to have cell phones or no cell phones? Of course, when I was in school, <laughs> I wrote a note to my girlfriend one time in the fourth grade, and it got, the teacher snapped it up. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> clarify, clarify what the, the boundaries are and the expectations, because how can you hold somebody accountable if you haven't clarified what the expectations are? So work at that. You know, as a leader, I had a, a, a board on the wall here where I had uh, two, I mentioned I had eight flights, two sections, one each with four flights in it. 
and two section commanders and four flight commanders in each. So I would sit there a lot of times, and this is what leaders need to do. You read anything about leadership. You've got to take time to reflect on your people and what they are. And I would sit there and I would look at those pictures. I had a picture of each one of those on my wall. And I would sit there and look at them. How are things going in A flight? They're doing good. Everything, as far as I know, good. Okay, B flight. Yeah, good. C flight. I need to talk to him about so-and-so. Okay, C flight. And I make a note, you know. And I go down through that, or I talk to the A flight commander. I'd say, I might say, you know, I don't, I, something concerns me over in G flight to the section two commander, I'd say something's concerning me over there in chief flight. Now I'm going to tell him what it was. I said, do you think there's a problem there with that person or with that situation? And he might say, yeah, it is. And I'm working. And I'd say, great. If he says, ah, I don't know. I said, well, why don't you go check it out? And if it's all well, you're, you're comfortable with it. That's fine. Otherwise, why don't you dig into that and just let me know how that turns out and what's happening there. Because if you don't stop and reflect, on what's going on in your organization, uh, you're going to see things probably that are not clarified and are not being uh, handled in the right way, and you can correct those early. I really like that. I mean, it's that emphasis. I mean, just uh, um, looking at, uh, I I think a lot of times as, uh, you know, whoever we've worked for or you know, whatever lessons we've had, I think it's so important that there be some sort of relationship there enough that kind of going back to something you said before that they, you know, if you're not feel, if you're not feeling it, or um, I think the best way of saying it is you're not really understanding some of your role that uh, you have someone who's going to try and help you with that, uh, um, understand those things that you need to uh, do and uh, practice and, and make part of what you, you know, who you are as that leader. Uh, And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is like in, in uh, chapter nine of your book, it's called Develop Your People. Uh, you comment less than successful leaders typically spend so much time performing that they have no time for practice. And the thought of having a professional coach is foreign to them. Could you talk about why this is an issue? I think when you're so busy and you're at a certain level, you you've two things. One, you're so busy, you just got to get this done. You got to get this done. And you're not thinking about growing. And as a leader, I think you always need to be growing. Uh, I won't tell you how old I am, <laughs> but I went in the varsity today and I told the guy behind the counter, I said, I've been going to the varsity for more than 70 years. <laughs> so nice. <laughs> started in Athens, Georgia there where I live nearby. But you got to always be learning. I mean, I work, I coach myself every day on many things. Uh, how to, I have to coach myself to tone it down with my wife because she's totally opposite for me and her personality. She's very sensitive. uh, I'm fast paced in your face kind of guy. Okay. That does not work for her. That turns her off. It's like, and so I I have to have a reset to turn myself down and I still have to, it's my natural instinct is like that. And I have with her, I have to, well, you got people working for you that are just like that. Okay. You got to learn when to tone it down. And with Lee Ellis, if you manage Lee Ellis, you better be willing to get right in his face and say, Lee, that is not a good idea. Why did you do that? Or why shouldn't we do this? And I tell people that work for me, I said, look, if you think that there's a better way of doing this, come and tell me, I'll listen to you. I want to hear it. Cause I just want to get it right. And uh, I'll listen to you. And if it's, 
if I can understand it and think it's better, I'll jump on your bandwagon. We'll go do that way. If not, I'm going to say, thank you very much. I heard you. I've thought about it, but there's some things I know that you don't know. And I want to go this way. Mm. And people like that, you know, it's like, I want to, I tell people, I don't care. Confront me. It's okay. I don't mind it. Now, some leaders are not that way, but I expect them to do it with, uh, you know, I haven't had a problem with people respecting me uh, because they know that I respect them. I make sure they know I respect them. I listen to them, but I also tell them, hey, I don't think that's the right way to go, and here's why, ABC. And if it doesn't work, you've done your part. (laughs) You have done your part. It's my fault if it doesn't work. It's not your fault. Right, right. You were forewarned. Right. Yeah. So, Lee, when you were talking about uh, looking up at the pictures of Mm -hmm. your of your 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 colleagues, um, you were thinking about people. Yes. You're thinking about their strengths, any kind of weaknesses, any things that you need to shore up, any uh, feedback that you need to give. And I was thinking about my, again, my experience in the publishing world where the work, the work tends to be the work, the work of the leader tends to be the work. It's very tactical. Yeah. And, you know, let's let we get this done. Now, I'm making a generalization here. There are leaders that do focus on their people, but one of the one of the best books I ever read was called The Advantage. It's by a guy yeah. named. Oh, I agree. Totally agree. I quote that book all the time. Yeah, it's just because he lays it out. Yes, the work is the work, but you got to focus on the people at the same time you're focusing on the work. So, that I just I'm I'm. It's very interesting to hear you talk about looking up at those those pictures of the the folks in in your in your flight. I'm a visual person, and so I like models and graphs and you know or graphics on my wall or somewhere. And I I have a, on my website we have a lot of models you can download, okay, and uh, for free. And because I'm such a graphic person, but when I can look at that person's picture, it helps me think about everything that's going on in their world, okay. Okay, things are okay there. Now, he's got three new people. I wonder if he's really training and developing. So the next time we talk, I'll say, now, what are you doing for those three new ones? Are you training them, and how's that going? And do you feel good about they're going to be able to make it? And, you know, those kind of questions. Right, right. Because I'm looking at each one of those. Here's one thing I think probably the most important thing besides character and courage. Courage is a big issue of everything we're talking about here. Courage, it requires courage to be vulnerable. See, you got to believe in yourself. Believing in yourself helps give you more courage. So character and courage, and then that's kind of the core. But then 40% of the population is naturally wired for results, for mission. In the military, we call it mission, for results, for the numbers, for the logic. Okay? And 40% people, their brain is naturally wired for relationships and people. But to be a great leader, you have to do both. And now I happen to be part of the 20% that has some of both. And so uh, sometimes uh, I can be a little over tilt one way or the other. Usually under pressure, I'm going to go for results. But then I call myself back and say, okay, you're taking care of your people. But here's the thing. I, this is where almost all my coaching goes to, is if you're a highly results-oriented leader, you've got to learn 
to connect with your people and believe it. Let them know you believe in them. Let them know you coach. Or if they need coaching, go coach them on how to do it better, the way that you think it ought to be done better or whatever. But engage with them. Don't just let them hang out out there because they're going to perform better if they think you believe in them and you care about them. You know what they're going to do? They're going to work harder. They're going to perform better. They're going to be more confident in their performance. So results go up. Then uh, if you're a relationship person, you've got to learn how to set standards and hold people accountable and in a respectful way, but don't put it off because a relationship person is almost always going to put off holding somebody accountable. Almost I, love, I love that description. I, I, I was blessed to work for a 20 percenter and uh, she she did exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, she could drive for results, but she had her heart and her eyes focused on her people yeah. all the time. Yeah. Well, that uh, see, this is the core of all of our leadership training. And when we worked with the supervisors, the education, uh, community, county, and city uh, educational supervisors. We uh, gave them our assessment. It takes 12 minutes online, and it tells you we use a tilt. Which way are you tilted? Toward results and mission or toward relationships, people? And the idea is if you're tilted toward relationships and people, what can you do? Let's learn two or three things you can learn to do to adapt a little bit. Now, it's going to take courage. And if you're results-oriented, which I was coaching a CEO in a, in a fairly – the brand name was fairly well known. It wasn't that big of an organization, but the brand name was well known. And he had been in this role for a year, joined the company, was the CEO for a year. And I was brought in to coach him. And uh, I asked him about his people. He knew nothing about his people. <laughs> so I said, and I talked to them. I'd already interviewed some of them. And they said, he's a good guy, but, you know, he doesn't connect with us. So I, he, he's such a results-oriented guy, I know he knows how to get results. So I made him a spreadsheet, and I put his seven direct reports across the top, and we came up with about seven things he could learn about them down the other side, on the side. And his job was to get checks in all the blocks. <laughs> so he had to learn how long they'd been there. Were they married? Did they have family? Uh, where, where did they come from? Just to kind of get to know them. How do they like their job? What's the biggest challenge in your job? How could I help you get it done better? Those were the kind of things that he, he, he checked them off. So with results-oriented people, they have to learn to adapt to relationship stuff one step at a time. I coached a CEO in Atlanta while well, he was a division president of a Fortune 200 company. He's CEO now. But he said, that's just not me. I just don't do that. That's just not me. This guy was a West Point graduate, a Harvard graduate, MBA. Wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. And uh, I said, but that's just not me. And I, and I says, it needs to be you. <laughs> Watch my lips. So <laughs> I, I had been, we'd been to an off-site retreat two weeks prior. I said, who managed that? Who put that retreat together? It was, I was there, and it was really good. It was a business retreat, but for fun and talk about good stuff and all. And he said, you know, so-and-so, and it was a young lady, you know, in her early 40s. And I said, did she do a good job? He said, great job. I said, have you told her? No. I said, well, you need to. I said, let's write up a little script, and you go down to her office and walk in and smile 
and tell her, hey, that retreat was very well done. Tell you, you and your team, y'all did a great job. We enjoyed it and we accomplished our goals. That's all you got to say and smile and walk out. Well, I had him go stand in front of the mirror. He had a, a bathroom outside of his office. I had him go stand in front of the mirror and practice smiling. Practice smiling. I love that. Yeah. I said, I want you to get so enthusiastic that you're starting to feel uncomfortable. That'll be about right. Did she faint? Steve, I'll tell you what happened was, over the next few months, his relationship with all his direct reports totally changed because they were dying for feedback. Uh, See, I knew that because I already talked to them. That's why I brought all this up. So uh, over the next few months, the relationship totally changed. He started encouraging them. Well, I finished my head three months of coaching with him. When I finished up, he said, the last meeting I had with him, he said, uh, hey, uh, can you stay five minutes after our meeting today? I got somebody who wants you to talk to. And I said, sure. Well, we finished. He jumps up, runs out, brings this lady in, and introduces his wife. And she said, I just wanted to say hi and meet you and say thank you because my husband, his relationship, whether we have one child, a 13-year-old son, their relationship had totally changed. He asks him questions and listens to him. He encourages him. It's just totally different. And uh, that, it just gave me a real lesson. It, in, it reinforced what I believed. Well, okay, now, so 15 years later, that was back in 2005 or so, 2004 or five, somewhere in there. I saw him, and I see him every four or five years. I saw him in a meeting downtown Atlanta. And I said, hey, how's your family doing? He said, oh, they're doing great. He said, I'm running a half marathon with my son. He said, my son's out of college. He works in a bank in town. I'm running a half marathon with him on Saturday. That's awesome. That's great. That's, that's so awesome. So I, I got to ask you something, um, Lee, before we leave this subject, because what you make me think about is that, you know, one of the things that uh, um, happens in uh, organizations is that, uh, um, you know, long time ago, they used to talk about the generation gap. And uh, now it seems to become something that even though they've got other words for it, because they want to talk about um, what generation you are and give it a different name and all this sort of stuff, that one of the things that we, we really have to <laughs> take a look at is because one of these, the, the younger generation that's in coming into these jobs and so forth, lots of them, they've only known using Google. They've only known okay. um, cell phone communication and, and texting and using apps and emojis and, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, can you talk to that just a little bit about the idea of a leader understanding that you got different people, you know, because you talked about that just a little bit, but just this question. Yeah. Well, I think about this a lot because I have three grandsons that are, well, two of them graduated with honors, highest honors in uh, math and uh, computer science. <laughs> and uh, it's their nature not to connect with me. They love me. I love them. I preach out to them when I can, but they just kind of live in a world. And if we do connect, it's usually a uh, text or something. And, uh, but they're really good kids. They're wonderful young people, but they just, they've never been taught the manners and courtesies that we grew up with. They didn't have a lot of responsibility growing up other than going to school. You know, when I grew up, uh, I fed the pigs and the chickens and, 
and the mule and the cow, and my brother milked the cow <laughs> as some other duties. But if it didn't, we didn't do it again, then done. My mom was a school teacher. My dad uh, worked in town. We lived on a farm, my grandpa's farm, but we did some farming. And uh, we had to do that responsibility. So between responsibility and accountability, which we had at age 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, and being taught how to connect with people and, you know, you you don't walk away and disengage with people without certain amounts of uh, uh, manners and that sort of thing that are just being courteous. And uh, so we were kind of taught some of that. But I don't think that it's not their fault, the younger people, let's say the people in their 20s, but uh, because of our busy culture and the information age and technology, parents have spent that much time actually teaching their young people how to be uh, an interactive member of a community. It's mm-hmm. a great point. I think here's what I think. I think the leader should take responsibility for that, not blame their parents. They just say it's us, people my age, it's not your fault. But here's what I expect in our culture here. And if you're on my team, this is what I expect. And I want you to try it, and I think you're going to see it's going to be healthy and helpful to you, and then you'll be learning that. So when you become a leader, you'll be able to do that too. That's awesome. I appreciate it. You know, because it just seems to be one of those barriers right now that, you know, and I think just like you said, there's, you know, the leader has to take that chance and that opportunity to, to point this out, that this is, this is our culture here, as opposed to trying to, you know, skirt around the issues or whatever. And it's like, because we got to do this stuff. You know, uh, I think that that Kirby Smart is a great example right now in leadership because he chews them players out, buddy. But he hugs them and loves them. That's so awesome. he's relationship and results. That's awesome. Yes, he delegates to his uh, uh, the University of Georgia football team this year. I'm pretty critical. Okay, I can be critical about things, but their execution on offense and defense. I don't think I've ever seen a college team consistently. No team executes all the time. You know, there's always you got 11 players doing stuff. But to have as many people on the team executing their responsibility on the play after play, I've never seen a college team execute that much that well. And I think a lot of it is because they 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 coach them, they coach them, they coach them, but they let them know, hey, buddy, we believe in you. You're important to this team. You're going to go in and play. <laughs> They're not bad for a Division two team, you know, really. <laughs> hey, 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 <laughs> Watch that there. there. This, this is this is a, the best week ever going on right now. I know, I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're, you're so right. I, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, I think sometimes what we get caught up in is we, we get caught up in, you know, whether we can address that sort of stuff or whatever, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, is this going to hurt somebody's feelings or is this going to, and it's funny what you say when you're talking about yourself, Lee. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm someone who – I. I like to tell when I, when I was a principal, I tell my, my uh, team that uh, I said, well, you know, we have people that I consider to be golden children in this school. And these are teachers who really, really do what they need to do to work with the kids and get it done. But usually they're not really good at doing paperwork or something like that. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and so let's figure out how to help them get the paperwork done instead of throwing uh-huh. them out <laughs> with, because yeah. they didn't get the paperwork out. And totally, you know, the different people have different talents. And so, uh, we all have to learn to adapt some 
to cover the areas where our talents are not very strong. You can't graduate from college if you don't learn to do certain things that are not. I had a lady challenge me one time because on our assessment, uh, there's two extremes. One side is planned. The other side is uh, spontaneous, okay? I'm on the spontaneous side. Well, my wife is on the planned side. Well, this lady says, how could I not be on planned? I have a PhD. Of course I'm planned. And I said, well, here, let me explain. I said, yes, you plan when you have to, to do something, you organize, you get into details. Yes, you do that for a little while, but then you go back and use your strengths to be more spontaneous. I said, let me ask you a question. If I went into your closet on Saturday afternoon, I'd probably see that you had it all straightened out and everything was straight. First of all, her husband had taken the assessment too. And I said, let's see. Your husband, he's pretty planned. I bet if I went and looked at his garage, I bet all the tools are organized, put in place and all that. Everything's organized. She said, oh, yeah. And I said, but if I went and looked at your closet out of the closet, by Thursday or Friday, it's probably getting a little messy. She says, well, I straightened it all up. And I said, that's the difference. He puts everything back in the same place every time. <laughs> that's not your strength. But because you know you have to do it. You get in there on Saturday afternoon and, or Saturday morning and organize it, and you go for another week. It's just a different talent, and you adapt good enough so that everything goes okay. Right, right. Oh, I love that. I, I got to make sure bef um, before we leave this section of your, your book that um, Chapter 12 is titled Exploit Creativity. And this comment mm -hmm. made me want to reread the segment <laughs> several times. Uh, and, you know, Lee, in this section of your book, you say, as a leader, you do not need to be the most innovative person in your organization, nor do you need to birth every idea. However, you do need to cultivate an environment that fosters innovation and facilitates the management of it. Why is this important to understand as a leader? Because leaders are usually so busy, they're not, they don't have time to be that creative. And if you are that creative, you've got to be very careful because you can come up with 14 ideas, but your people can't do 14 ideas, okay? There's just no way. So what the reality is in most organizations, in the POW camp, the, the way to communicate with tap codes and hand codes and all the different, there's so many creative things, it usually came from the bottom up. Somebody had learned this, somebody remembered it, somebody invented it and it came from the bottom up. It didn't come from the top down. And so often, there are many companies that have people in there at the lower levels where they do the work and solve the problems every day. They're the ones that see a better way to do this, and right. you have to listen to them. Because uh, everything they come up with, there are some people highly creative, their right, their, or their brain, rather, their brain is just coming up ideas all the time. You've got to have a way to kind of filter them. Ross Perot, in his book, his, his autobiography, he did, he kind of wrote a book for his son, but it became a good book. And he said, you know, uh, and the guy's name he called, I've forgotten it now, but I knew the guy. He said he was so creative. He ran one of our divisions, and he would come in there and tell me these ideas. And I'd say, well, Bill, why don't you go test it out a little bit, check it out some more, and if it's really good, then let's go look at it and do it maybe. And two weeks later, I'd see him and I'd say, well, what do you think? He said, yeah, I checked it out. That's not a good idea. <laughs> he said, he said he, but he had so many great ideas that we really use, but I would just tell him, go sort it through it and let's see if it's really going to work for us. 
and he would, and he was good about that. He could do that. Now, a lot of creative people can't do that, but this guy understood that, and maybe he knew that Ross was going to enforce it, but uh, he did that, and it really helped um, Pro Systems and EDF really become who they were, and he gives the guy a lot of credit for that in his book. EDS tonight. Yeah. Lee, like like Steve, um, chapter twelve really impacted me because when you when you described uh, the conditions where you were imprisoned and how they they kept you separate from one another, but there were what I found fascinating was how people became inventive to, as you mentioned, to communicate. And there were other, other ways, other, other uh, inventions that they came up with. And part of that I think was, was a way to retain your, your sanity. And like they talked about, you talked about the one gentleman who escaped was captured and then he immediately started to plan his next, his next escape. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the mentality there of, of why creativity is so important to infuse into, into people? You know, a uh, couple, couple of things. One is we were creative to solve problems and to communicate with others and connect with them because we did not want anybody to be alone and lonely, even uh, if we were in isolation. We would risk our lives to get to them and slip a note under their door. Somebody would distract the guards over here and cause a problem. And the other guy would go over there and slide a note. We'd stolen some, uh, a pencil somewhere, you know, we had toilet paper. We had a three gallon bucket with a lid in our cell. That was our toilet for many years, but we had a little toilet paper, it was really rough, but you could write on it and fold it up and slide it under somebody's door. But the whole idea of, uh, of being creative one, to solve problems, but two, when you're sitting there, for there's no TV, there's no books, there's no phone, and you got all day. What are you going to do? Well, after you get get moved in with somebody, let's say you move in with somebody, then you talk for two weeks nonstop, and then it's like, okay, I heard that one. I heard that one. <laughs> so you start spending time thinking, okay? I once farmed for a month. Eight or ten hours a day, I was farm. I started with forty acres, and I ended up I owned almost the whole county. I didn't have to pay any taxes. I could set my own prices, but I kept growing, figuring out how how much how much barbar would it take to fence in sixty acres or hundred acres, and uh, how many rolls of barbar and all that kind of stuff. Figuring mathematically, guys. One guy I was reading in one of our stories today. One guy, he spent uh, a, maybe a couple of weeks figuring out. What was the mathematical difference between one note on a piano and the next note? Wow. And it's uh, the 12th uh, the 12th power of something. Anyway, guys just would miss, go into all sorts of mathematical problems and solve them in deep mathematical problems. Or some guys would, uh, one time I spent a month deciding what kind of lawyer I'd be and where I'd go to law school. I decided finally that I would be a uh, tax lawyer and I'd go to the University of Virginia. <laughs> when I came home, I didn't want to do that because I threatened to go back and fly. But I do have kind of a lawyer mind. I like to argue and put logic in A, B, C, D, okay, like that. And uh, But 
the time spent thinking, I remember once one of the most beneficial nightmares I had once I quit having more nightmares after the first six months, I had a, a nightmare one night that my eighth grade science teacher, Miss Jordan was in the class and she walked up to my desk and asked me my homework and I didn't have it done. And that was probably the case. I mean, that happens probably a lot because I was lazy about doing homework. And she said, my real name is Leon. And I went by Leon high school. She said, Leon, you could be a good student if you just do your homework. And she was a really nice lady. That's what I dreamed. And when I woke up the next day, I said, never again will I not do my homework. Never. I like that. <laughs> and so I became totally committed to doing and overdoing homework. If it took to get something done, I was going to do it. That's excellent. <laughs> you know, one of the, we've, we spent a lot of time talking about your first book. Um, you have a second book, which is Engage with Honor, Building a Culture of Courageous Accountability. And you've mentioned mm -hmm. the importance of courage uh, a few times. And I was just wondering if you could talk about what, what courageous accountability is to you. Well, people kept saying, you know, when are you going to write a book about accountability? We need accountability. And I said, yeah, we do. But as I did my research, I realized that accountability has to start with the person, the individual. You have to be accountable. So uh, the first part of the book is about yourself being accountable. And it takes courage. It takes a lot of courage. You have to believe in yourself. You have to hold yourself accountable. You have to be honest and vulnerable. Uh, and to do that, it takes courage. And courage is believing in myself and in my mission and my purpose. When you believe in your purpose, we POWs, we believed in our purpose. We believed in our mission. We believed, we learned to believe in ourselves. We believed in ourselves as pilots very well. But in that POW camp, we learned to believe in ourselves that, yes, I may lose today. I may give in to this guy today, but tomorrow I'm bouncing back. And he's going to mm -hmm. have a tough time with me tomorrow. I'm not giving up for good. I'm just bouncing back. I'm, I'm just giving up to get through this today, but tomorrow I'm coming back. That kind of, that's the kind of courage uh, that we need. And there's a great book on courage <clears throat> written by uh, the back. Uh, it's called courage, the backbone of leadership by Gus Lee. He was on the faculty at West point. I think his graphic in there is so powerful for me. He shows all these integrity things on one side of the river and success of being in a person of integrity on the other. And he says the only way you get across that river to do all these courageous and things of integrity that you need to do is you have to swim across the river of fear. To me, that is so powerful because it's the people who have the courage to swim across that river of fear and doubt that are going to be courageous. So to me, having been a POW, we don't worry about most stuff, <laughs> you know, I never worried about, I never even thought about getting promoted. I didn't worry about getting promoted. I just wanted to do my job and do it well. That's take awesome. care of my people, do my job, do my responsibility. If I do all that, my promotion will take care of itself. I don't have to worry. Right. right. I love it. That's, that is so awesome. I, you know, we're, we're getting closer to finishing up, uh, Lee. And, uh, um, before we do that, I was wondering, you mentioned at the very beginning of our, our, uh, show, um, 
about your latest book coming out, and uh, it's called Captured by Love, True Romance Stories by POWs. I was wondering if uh, you would like to do a little bit more in-depth sharing of that. Yeah, um, so this book, this is the cover. It's not the book. The book isn't printed yet, but it will be before June, sometime May and June. You can see it's kind of a, a, a light blue background, but see that's a heart-shaped lock. Oh, lock, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, these stories, we have 20 stories from 20 guys who were POWs longer than five years. Two of them were there eight years, the first POW and the second POW captured in the war. And so there's some POW, a little bit of POW story, a lot about what the wives went through back home. Of the guys, uh, about 15 of them were married, and about 10 of them came home and their wives were waiting for them. One guy, his wife died while he was there. Uh, and the other four or five, they came home and their wives had divorced them and moved on. But they all met somebody within a year or so and married that person. And now they've been married more than 40 years. Uh, all been married 48 years, except for a couple who's died. And, and a couple of those have married a widower or a widower who was another POW. So, uh, what we learned out of those, this, I wrote the book to, to start with. I got, I hired a romantic guy, romantic author to help me because I kept hearing these stories of romance and how they met and fell in love and what the women had went through that I just felt like we needed a book uh, about POW romance that people would, women especially would like that. But what those women did for us, they changed the policy of the U.S. government. The wives and parents, especially wives and mothers, they changed the policy of the U.S. government to speak up about our treatment and demand that they live by the, operate by the Geneva Accords on treatment of POWs, MIAs, and that, uh, they changed the policy of our government, which ended up, they went worldwide and people like Ross Perot sponsored them to go travel worldwide. And they got other country, neutral countries to put pressure on the communists about our treatment. And sure mm -hmm. enough, when Ho Chi Minh died in the fall of 69, they stopped the torture. That's how we came home so healthy because of what these women did. They were so courageous. They stood up. Shy women stood up in front of big crowds and said, this is what's happening to our men. This is what we need to do. And it worked. That's and this was, like, this was the late 60s and early 70s when women were just starting to stand up, you know. So it's a great book on the power of women to be uh, very effective in a very professional way. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Lee, do you do you want to read from Captured by Love or either of the other two books? Do you have a passage that you could share with our listeners? Well, yes, I could read you one page out of uh, Captured by Love. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> this is the final manuscript. And uh, the 20 stories, we, we in the introduction, we give a brief history of what was happening in the war, the men and the wives. Okay, in there. So uh, here's one. Uh, this guy was a POW eight years. And uh, he's the one who brought the tap code in. This is Carlisle, Smitty Harris, and Louise Harris. Tarzan and Jane is the name of the story. Author's comment. As of this book's publication, Tarzan and Jane have been happily married 62 years. Louise and I started over, started over where we had left off. 
It was as if I had simply taken a walk around the block. Smitty's walk around the block included 2,871 days during which he endured torture, starvation, fear, and loneliness. Louise's walk included raising three children, single-handedly taking on the Air Force, bureaucracy, and fighting various cultural norms and business practices that discriminated against women. During those years, she also spent more than 100 care packages to Vietnam for Smitty. Much later, she learned that he had received only two of them. Wow. That's going to be a powerful read. Very much so. Very much so. Thanks for sharing the, that. Uh, the, this, uh, the, the stories are funny. They're so funny. And I tell you, uh, so many, we've had about 35, 40 people read it and review. And almost every one of them, I laughed and I cried. Uh, nice. You go from laughing to crying, laughing to crying. But the, the resilience of how they just kept bouncing back, the women, you know, Louise was pregnant, eight months pregnant, had two little girls. They were living in Okinawa. They were stationed there. Smitty got shot down, and they tried to tell her to go home. And she was eight months pregnant. And she said, I'm not going home now. I'm staying here till I have this baby. She had the baby. She and the two girls come back, and they land in the U.S. and uh, be met by a lieutenant. She's the first MIA wife uh, overseas, okay, missing in action. He was missing in action. He wasn't a POW yet. And, uh, so, and so the lieutenant said, now, the Air Force says you're going to get $350 a month. That's a check. You'll give it, get $350 a month. She said, what? She said, he makes about $1,000 a month. Why are you only going to pay me three fifty? Well, that's the Air Force policy because the rest of it has to be invested, be there for him when he comes home. She said, I'm not putting up with that. You call the secretary of the Air Force. I want to talk to him right now. He said, ma'am, I can't call him. She said, you dial the number. I'll talk to him. Nice. Now, this guy was a former stewardess flight attendant. Secretary of the Air Force gets on. She talks to him. He says, well, I just don't know that we can do that, but I'll check into it and let you know later. She said, later, before 5 o'clock today. <laughs> and he called her back before 5 o'clock. The Secretary of the Air Force did and said, okay, we're going to pay you his regular paycheck. Wow. She said, no. wow. She, the Secretary of the Air Force had said, well, you know, we have to take care of his children. She said, well, I'm taking care of his children right now. I need the money. <laughs> so she was a former, most uh, several of these ladies were former stewardesses, flight attendants, you know, so they were pretty confident too, you know, to step up. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm rereading the final draft right now. And every one of them I've read, the women, uh, most of the women are pretty strong too. They go along with the guys, but they know when to draw the line and be strong. That's awesome. Very good. And the guys listen to them. <laughs> nice. I'll bet. That's so cool. Uh, um, Lee, we're, uh, we're finishing up and we got another question to ask you, but before we do that, do you want to share a little bit about your uh, coaching and about your leadership uh, um, organization and uh, just tell them a little bit where they can find that and where people can connect with you? Yeah. Um, in 1998, I'd been developing career assessments, and we decided we saw so much value in helping people find out what career they should go into. And then I'd been involved running two leadership schools in the Air Force. I 
once that was all done, I'm not a maintainer. And I told my boss, I said, we need to start a, 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 a leadership group. He said, sure. And this was a Christian not-for-profit. Larry Burkett was his name. And so uh, we started a, a, a business and then we moved it out. And I bought the, some of the intellectual property. And another fellow and I started a business. And so that was 1998. So I've been doing developing leadership training, studying it, coaching leaders, uh, doing workshops. And then in 20, finally, people said, well, when are you going to write a book? And I said, oh. So in 2011, 10 and 11, I wrote a book, came out in 2012, The Leading with Honor book. And that book got me into speaking. So I do uh, professional speaking since 2012, which is, you know, 10, 11 years ago. And um, I enjoy speaking and sharing those messages, but I still do training. I do workshops with the Air Force, the Navy, uh, the businesses, corporations, uh, all sorts of organizations that I work with. And uh, so I do workshops, I do speaking, and uh, I'm working on a new book. (laughs) So... But a lot of it is most all of our leadership work is based around assessment. You know, your assessments are scientifically validated. So when you can see graphically, numerically, what your strengths are, your strong talents are, what your not strong talents are, and what are the strengths and the struggles that go with them. In our report, you get five strengths for each trait and five struggles of your three strongest traits. Five strengths and five struggles. Well, we always like to focus on the strengths, but we got these struggles over here too. Yeah. yeah. As a leader, you're going to have to learn to adapt a little bit. You don't have to re- you cannot reinvent yourself, but you can learn to adapt in different situations, like those stories I told earlier, where guys leaders learn to adapt a little bit, and uh, it totally changed uh, their leadership, their ability. It took them from an imbalance to being much more balanced. A 20 percenter. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Lee, um, I, uh, my podcast is um, uh, getting unstuck, cultivating curiosity. And I always end my podcast by asking my guests, um, what are you curious about? I continue to want to learn more and more about the human existence and authenticity and how can I help people discover who they are, believe in themselves, become more healthy. The more healthy you are, we all, nobody is, nobody grew up in a perfect home with perfect neighbors and perfect teachers and perfect leaders. We all got some scars and stains and pain and shame. And I want to help people grow out of that. Because when you become more healthy, you can adapt. You become a much healthier leader, a healthier person, which means you're going to raise your kids better. You're going to be a better spouse. You're going to be a better performer at work. To me, that's my mission. Beautiful. Beautifully said. And one other thing. Uh, I have a strong faith, and I believe that God's love is the most important thing. Whether you're Jewish, Christian, or whatever, God's love is the central core. We are loved. And so to me, growing more aware of his love 
and receiving his love makes me feel healthier. It heals me from my, uh, you know, my shame and guilt and all that. It heals me. And then I can give love to others more easily. So to me, it's a simple thing, receiving and giving. (laughs) Beautiful. That is awesome. And, uh, you know, Colonel Ellis, Lee, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for your service to your, to our country and, uh, and, uh, all leaders need to check out. You got Leading with Honor, Engage with Honor, and Coming Soon, Captured by Love, True Romance Stories by POWs. I wish you the best in all you do and can't thank you enough for all this time that you spent with us today. So, uh, well, thank honor. you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate and enjoy being with you. I do want to mention one more thing, and it's on our website in the back of the Engage with Honor book. We have an online course where you can take your team through that book and an online course now, and it's the cheapest way I know of to get leadership development. <laughs> and I have Ralph Delavega and Deanne Turner, and uh, I got all sorts of famous speakers and business leaders giving short videos on there talking about their leadership and what they do. So it's a, it's a good way to have good discussions with your team. Very good. I want to take the, the survey, find out, find out uh, am I a 40% or results, 40% people or a 20%er? All I need is your email. All right. You got it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Colonel. Uh, Thank you this so much. was an honor to spend time with you. Thank you. Good being with you guys. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and host. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.